Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. In Lives of the Stoics, I tell a story about a guy named Rutilius Rufus. And Rutilius Rufus is really interesting because he's a guy at the top of the Roman political game and he witnesses corruption in one of Rome's provinces. Basically, some other elites are looting this province, uh, mistreating the people who live there. And he essentially, he effectively reports it. He makes the corruption public. And you might like to think that he's received and celebrated and, and uh, rewarded for doing the right thing. But the Stoics knew that that's not how life works. In fact, Rutilius Rufus is not only uh, not thanked for what he did, but he's brought up on corruption charges by the people who are engaged in the corruption, uh, found guilty by a kangaroo court, and exiled. He's sent away. He loses everything. He does the right thing, and he loses everything. Rutilius Rufus not only doesn't complain about this, he doesn't even utter a word in his own defense, and he basically does the right thing because it's the right thing, and uh, is actually received with open arms back to the province that he had helped protect. If you could have asked him why he did it, um, despite all the negative consequences, why he was fearless in doing the right thing, he would have said, because the right thing matters. And that's actually the title of my guest today's riveting memoir, one of the most important books and important figures in recent American political history, Lieutenant Colonel 
Alexander Vindman's new book, Here, Right Matters, about being a whistleblower that led directly to the impeachment of the President of the United States. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was most recently the Director of European Affairs on the White House's National Security Council. And prior to retiring from the U.S. Army, he served as a foreign area officer with assignments in the U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, and for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, as a political military affairs officer. He's a doctoral student in Foreign Policy Institute fellow at John Hopkins University. He's a military fellow at the Lawfare Institute. He served honorably in Iraq, uh, almost two decades of service in the U.S. Army. And he finds himself staring down the most powerful man in the world, the allies of the most powerful man in the world, enormous media attention. And despite being completely in the right and bringing forth alarming behavior uh, and corruption uh, at the highest levels, he loses his job at the White House. His brother loses his job at the White House. And indeed, his military career comes to an end because of it. And yet, why did he do it? Uh, because as he tells his father, here, right matters, right? Doing the right thing matters in America. It matters as a military officer. It matters as a human being, and it matters as a stoic. So I was so excited and honored to be able to talk to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Uh, we have a fascinating talk about philosophy, about ethics, about standing up for what you believe in, and most of all, courage. So I encourage you to read his book, Here, Right Matters. Our conversation also dovetails perfectly with my new book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave. It's up for pre-order right now at dailystoic.com slash pre-order. You can get a whole bunch of awesome bonuses from me, including actual pages from the manuscript that I wrote signed by me. Uh, it comes out September 28th, available everywhere books are sold. But if you go to dailystoic.com slash pre-order, you get a bunch of bonuses. Uh, I'm really excited about this book. And my conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, to me, uh, is exactly what I'm talking about in the book. Um, he's the kind of figure that I would have liked to have put in the book. And as we open our conversation, a wonderful example of where physical courage and moral courage come together in a really important way. And so I'm excited about his book, Here, Right Matters, which I read and very much enjoyed, and my new book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave. Check them both out, and uh, please be brave. Do the right thing. Stand up for what you believe in. If you see something, say something. Speak up. As Marx really says, just that you do the right thing. The rest doesn't matter. You know, my, so my the book I'm working on right now, actually, it comes out in a month. I'm doing a book on courage and it, it being the, the first of the four stoic <gasps> virtues. And one of the things I thought a lot about in the book, and you seem to be the perfect person to talk to about it because you've experienced him from both sides. We make this distinction between moral courage and physical courage. And you have had to experience both uh, in Iraq and then facing down the most uh, powerful person in the world, the, the eyes of the world upon you, risking your job, your livelihood, et cetera. Talk to me about that distinction. And I'd also be curious, like, what's actually scarier? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm glad I could have uh, this conversation with you, Ryan. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, I've talked about this, this same theme uh, repeatedly, actually. At one point I was, uh, asked to do a TED talk. Um, and I didn't do, I ended up not doing it because I was still in uniform and I, you know, I didn't want to kind of sure. further rock the boat and all that kind of stuff, but it was after I was drawn into to prominence. And the themes I came, I, I started thinking about were, were exactly, you know, the central theme of moral versus physical courage and how 
physical courage is easily identified, uh, often prized um, with medals, award, uh, people get award medals, you know, uh, firemen running into a burning building, policemen, you know, uh, conducting a heroic action. Um, on the battlefield, it's easy, you know, people get awarded medals for that kind of stuff. But moral courage is is much harder to identify. It's also too often undervalued. But I think, in my view, it's moral courage uh, that tends to really uh, drive change and be most impactful. And I guess I was thinking about, like, you know, folks that displayed moral courage that changed the course of history. Mahatma Gandhi with, uh, you know, uh, nonviolent protest. Rosa Parks uh, with civil dis- disobedience. Same thing with um, Martin Luther King. There, are, you know, these are folks that I'm not by any means comparing myself to. Of course, but they're the most kind of elevated uh, folk, uh, forms of um, of moral courage that are extolled, but more common forms of moral courage are not, and they're kind of overlooked. And sometimes I'd say they come with a much higher cost, right? Sure. You know, there's a, there's a, might be a, a personal uh, danger associated with uh, physical courage, uh, but it's like you know you survive it, you're good. There's no 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 nothing, re- not as often an enduring uh, price to be paid. Uh, well, that although- was one of the, that was one of the things I was thinking about. Is it, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Rosa Parks because as much as that's moral courage, there's also a profound physical element to what they did, both sort of putting their body in danger. So when I was thinking about it, I, I sort of came to this definition that it's actually, there's only one form of courage, and that's when you put your ass on the line. Sometimes that's literally, sometimes yeah. that's figuratively, but yeah. it seems like in both cases, whether you're in Iraq or you're testifying in front of Congress, you're having to put your ass on the line, either reputationally, the future of your career, or you're going out not knowing if you're going to survive and come home. In your book, what, how do you draw? Then how do you identify? We'll, we'll turn this back on. Uh, interview for you, but how, how do you, I guess, differentiate between you know what's prized in physical courage versus which is uh, versus what's not so kind of recognized in, in moral courage? Well, I, again, we don't have to make this about your book, about my book, because I loved your book, and we're going to talk all about yeah. it. I, I guess I'm just saying that the distinction may be arbitrary and mm-hmm. without, it's a distinction without a difference, right? Like at, at the end of the day, um, both society needs both, they both matter. And what I think is really interesting is how often we see p- people who are capable of physical courage and not capable of moral courage and people who are capable of moral courage, but not capable of physical courage when probably ideally they should be fused together. I think that's right. And I think that that uh, it's it's the only difference might be in the fact that uh, how society kind of prizes and, and reflects them. Um, so and now the answer to your question is, which one was more difficult? Uh, I think, you know, I guess um, I would say that the Ukraine scandal and the testimony was a lot more difficult because in in, ter- in terms of Iraq, you know, you get you get trained to respond to certain things and certain ways, including in combat. And I felt, I quickly kind of fell back on my training. I allude to this in the story, in, in the book. Um, and I fell back on my training. You know, there Keep was moving, no- Don't get yeah, bogged down. Yeah, don't, you know, there's no like, you know, there was no kind of overwhelming fear in that moment. There, you know, not to say, not to discount the fact that, you know, there, there's like legitimate rational fear in combat, but that wasn't the case uh, then. 
Uh, and I think it's probably not the case for, for most soldiers in contact. They're doing what they need to do. Uh, but this was a much, much, a much more mindful kind of activity. You know, even if the first report was, uh, you know, with some minimal danger in mind, maybe some, you know, kind of uh, extra scrutiny at the White House or losing my position at the White House. I didn't think I was going to lose my military career. By the time I was testifying in front of Congress, I knew, you know, what I was getting into. But I also w- wasn't going to be cowed. I wasn't going to be weak kneed. I wasn't going to kind of, you know, lose composure. I was not going to. Uh, um, now I just, I wasn't going to be bullied into, um, you know, taking less than what I thought was the principle, proper principled stand. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe that's an interesting distinction too, is that, uh, physical courage is often very brief, uh, punctuated with violence or danger. Um, but your, the Ukraine scandal, uh, you know, we're only a year out from it now. It's still ongoing for you. There's still ramifications and consequences and you're still, I mean, you, 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 it's like you leaped, but you're not even quite sure where you're going to land yet. Right. You're still that, falling. That's exactly right. In terms of both consequences. Um, and, you know, because p- p- people now you know, believe I'm politicized or I'm a hot potato and most people are, are kind and, and, you know, open to talking to me, but there are people that are apprehensive and don't want to be denounced by Trumpers. Uh, there's a lot of ambiguity with regards to, uh, you know, uh, next steps, even though I'm engaged in some really pretty awesome work working on a doctorate, uh, working in a think tank, you know, having this book come out. But there's long term kind of um, uncertainty. And um, in a lot of ways, I, you know, I had a, a softer landing <clears throat> because of, of how prominent my position was that most whistleblowers that show you know moral courage don't don't get and yes. have to deal with these challenges, you know, much, much more significant way. Right. Yeah. You didn't you didn't have a 20 year court battle to finally get your your chance in front of the cameras. Um, you weren't being followed by private investigators for years, et cetera. In, in some cases, yours was the whole thing compressed down into a year that some of these whistleblowers <coughs> we read about, you know, endured for for decades. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, I think this the th- let's go back to the idea of why. Why, if if a person is capable of one, do they seem to struggle with the latter? And I think it's particularly interesting in the military domain where you see people who who fought in wars, who fought in battle. I just got this one, Alpha, about Eddie Gallagher and oh. uh, you know, somebody that was physically courageous, yeah, uh, but obviously had lacked you know moral courage. And yes. there's too many of these types of things. Yes, and and so why is it? I guess I'm I'm so interested. You're, you're somebody who can face down bullets is then is not even uh, afraid to stare down the president in an impeachment proceeding as you are, but it just just doesn't want to be like lightly out of favor. Right. Like it's interesting how soft the landing would be for most of these people and how petrified they are of even the slightest deviation from being on the inside of things. That's exactly right. And uh, the only thing I could think of is, again, you know, you could train somebody, you could b- kind of build a muscle memory to react to kind of combat. Uh, and uh, you could train somebody to be a physical specimen and kind of, uh, you know, run run through fire and stuff like that. Uh, but it's a much, much harder thing to train current, you know, moral courage to instill values and ethics. Um, and we don't exercise that in the same way. You could actually, I have this, you know, this, line of reasoning that I've kind of uh, laid out, especially when I talk to younger folks 
about exercising moral courage like a muscle and mm-hmm. building muscle memory. You could do that. You could do, you know, if you're if you're an infantryman, you train on reflexive fires, you know, stress shoots and all that kind of stuff. You could train how to do that. It's much, much more difficult to train leaders to display moral uh, courage and, uh, you know, adhere to ethics and v- values when the stakes are kind of a lot of ways higher, uh, not to life, limb or eyesight, but to kind of prospects, career prospects and, and successes, imagination, Im- imaginings of where, you know, you might end up. And <clears throat> my simple answer to this is you public service often engenders uh, a, um, a duty to something other than yourself. Yes. You could build your, your kind of your ethics and values muscles through some through service through service externally oriented and train yourself to kind of respond in a in a, in the way you would like to uh respond in in smaller challenges and in progressively tougher challenges and then when you're faced with really kind of pivotal moments um critical junctures you're actually you know you have all the tools in play then you just need to trust yourself that you you've built all that muscle memory moral mu- muscle memory to respond accordingly yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Like someone will be willing to run into battle and potentially lose their life. But then they're like, I don't want to say something. I might lose my job. And you're sort of like comparing the uh, the stakes. And yet, yeah. for some reason, we're, we're much more afraid of the latter than the former, uh, even though it's fundamentally, objectively irrational. Forethought. I think the difference is forethought. <clears throat> the the yes. moral courage recovers forethought, whereas I think uh, physical courage doesn't does not. It's in it's the moment. Like, it's in the moment and it's self-preservation. It kind of feeds to the, you know, the, the most uh, basic instinct of survival. Uh, whereas the other one requires kind of higher reasoning and forethought. So that forethought is really important then, because you talk about this at the beginning of the book, when you're talking about some of your critiques of, uh, of American policy vis-a-vis the Russians. And then you talk about at the end, you sort of your wrap up lessons. You talk mm-hmm. about this idea of self-deterrence, which is yeah. basically we know what we should do. We know what a good response would be, but then we talk ourselves out of it. Uh, and so it sounds like what you're saying is forethought is often us convincing ourselves that we have a good reason to not do what we know we should do. Or uh, we a forethought could be the fact that we recognize, um, you know, we have some perspective. In my case, I, am, I had the perspective that this is, you know, a historical moment. <clears throat> I had the forethought that this was kind of our democracy in the balance in certain ways with the president trying to undermine free and fair elections. I had the forethought, you know, of geopolitics and uh, what this might mean for kind of U.S. national security with uh, undermining Ukraine security. I had all this. And in that case, my forethought drove me singularly to the idea of, uh, you know, uh, upholding my duty as opposed to talking my uh, myself out of it. But the lesson on self-deterrence is, you know, it's it's not it's more complex than just kind of your own actions and uh, your own biases. It's the fact that adversaries in often cases understand those biases and feed those biases. In the case of Russia, they, they, they breed self-deterrence. They have a whole doctrine around it, reflexive control. They do something that kind of, you know, provokes a kind of like a, you know, almost irrational response because they're doing saber rattling and a threatening nuclear war. When in reality, they have no greater, you know, interest in, in a war where they're going to be annihilated also. So it's, it's, it's 
being mindful of your own kind of circumstances, but also the environment around you. Like I could have self-deterrence could have been bred by the fact that it's a notoriously vindictive administration. Uh, and that, you know, I should, they're, they're trying to convince people to not testify because they're going to get retaliated against. So it's all of that. Uh, and it's pretty awesome that we're having this conversation. I can't, I, it's hard to believe that we're still breaking new ground. Like this is the last thing I've got on my plate for like two weeks or a week and change. So that's good. Well, I want to nerd out with you about it. So in, in my book, Stillness is the Key, one of the people I was fascinated with is Kennedy. And I talk about the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you as a Russian expert might, might be able to tell me if I got it wrong or not. But to me, that was such a profound blending of physical and moral courage in that he was, he was both deterred and not deterred. Right. He was he was able to think through what the enemy wanted him to think. He was able to think about it on moral levels. He was aware of what their response is and what his response should be. And he's sort of able to think it out and be strategic. So he proceeds, but he doesn't proceed in the way that we often mistake courage, which is sort of a fit of passion or bravery or an aggressive clapback. He sort of goes, OK, here's what the enemy Here's what the enemy did. Here's what the enemy thinks I'm going to do. Here's what people want me to do. And sort of playing that multi-dimensional chess into a measured but firm response is yes. a great, uh, to me, a good example of physical and moral courage together. I think that's right. And there, are, frankly, have been very few examples of people effectively managing the Russia relationship because um, because they don't understand the Russians and they don't go through those kind of layered calculations of uh, you know addressing kind of the, the urgencies that that are being driven by U.S. constituencies, including the defense establishment, uh, pressures being applied by the Russians directly, uh, you know the, the threat of of a full scale war, and taking it really up to the brink, uh, and and managing to navigate. That's that was you know, obviously a phenomenal uh, um, navigation of a very perilous event. I think in a lot of ways, uh, I don't know if, if Reagan was quite as sophisticated, but he was as successful, I'd say, in a lot of ways. And uh, the first George Bush, maybe in, in certain regards also. But that's really there. There are not that many examples. I mean, maybe uh, Nixon with regards to China uh, and uh, detente. Um, but we, we don't we're not very good at it in general, I think. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now. Like, for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. 
Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply there's a great quote from marcus aurelius he's and he's writing it in his journal but he says um not what the enemy hopes you will see but what's really there and i think that so i think when we're responding to stuff uh you have to see through both the real dangers and the fake dangers and then sort of land on what you think is right Yep. <laughs> well, j- jumping ahead, though, um, and, and I, I want to come back to some stuff, but because you brought it up, I think when people think about whistleblowers or they think about, you know, moral courage, even I guess sometimes physical courage, they often just think like, is this right or wrong? And obviously the title of the book is Here Right Matters. But I, I thought it was really interesting towards the end of the book. You you yes, right matters. But you also talk about a need to be strategic about it and uh, intelligent about it and think through your options. Just because you were on the side of right doesn't mean you're going to be successful. And it doesn't mean that the world is going to receive you with open arms. I think sometimes I, I particularly think about this with my generation. We just think that, you know, might makes right. And that's yep. not or right makes might. And that's not really true. You know, what's interesting about it is, you know, sometimes people <clears throat> would, would think that I'm kind of naive in, in, in that uh, statement of here, right matters. But I think if you read the book, I, I hope that it, it comes across that I'm pretty damn thoughtful at, you know, every single turn. And I didn't, you know, fully un- uh, uh, uncover every uh, kind of nuance of the way I thought through things. But <clears throat> I was very thoughtful about uh, understanding that this was a uh, that was a vindictive administration about selecting counsel that would not necessarily kind of a uh, Republican council that would not, you know, telegraph uh, or alar- overly alarm uh, White House counsel because they had direct rapport with them. Uh, you know, some interactions with uh, uh, with the White House that was being belligerent and sen- sending out uh, talking points and say rattling as much as I could as a uniformed officer on my own. I thought was I was very you know calculating about how to do these things, but always falling back on the you know, the kind of the basic principle of what is the right thing to do, how to do that right thing in the right way. So always focused on the right or doing the right thing, but kind of the right way also being a critical component of that equation. And, um, you know, because there were any number of times where I could have really kind of stepped in it. You know, if this report was done not through proper channels, but through, you know, a report to the media and I, I leaked something that whole it would have undermined the, 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 the whole legitimacy of the report. And my credibility, um, you know, if I had kind of, you know, 
if I if I decided to take a, a more public position outside of where I had to, which was in public testimony, you know, if I had extra commentary in addition to that, that would have been that probably could have destabilized the situation anywhere along the way. I could have tripped up. And it's frankly almost a miracle that things kind of unfolded the way they did. And the way I rationalize it is I strung together enough right things in the right way, simple kind of decisions, frankly, uh, you know, transactional and strung enough of those together to, to navigate something that was, you know, unforeseeable and extremely complex. Yeah, there's a great quote about De Gaulle, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't have it exactly, but he's saying like, people see the courageous stand and he's like, you don't understand how manipulative I had to be behind the scenes, how many conversations I had to have, how many people I had to recruit. You don't understand just the sheer sort of maneuvering required to do what to the public just seems like you say what you think and you give a public testimony and that's the end of it. Um, that was, yeah. I don't want to say stage managed, but you maneuvered yeah. yourself into a position to have yeah. the impact that you had. That's true. The the the, the uh, single pl- uh, point where I'd say the complexity doesn't really exist is in in the in my you know in the seminal moment my complaint yes. uh, that one was like the the only forethought was that I recognized the the gravity of the moment. You know, I, I say that when I uh, I make that point very clear when I walk into my twin brother's office and say if the president you know if the president's actions are disclosed is going to be impeached. Uh, and you know the, the time it took me to walk from the the situation room up to my third floor offices in a legal shop. That's it. There was no like you know a, uh, deliberation on what I knew I had to do. It's everything afterwards. You right. know, trying to see if I preserve uh, my my preserve the the possibility of a career, uh, reputation, and all those other things that uh, that ended up becoming far far more complex and really required in certain ways maybe more kind of. Uh, clarity and courage, and, and uh, uh, than that, that initial, initial behind the, the scenes report. I, I loved uh, your brother's role in it. I was particularly impressed with your wife. She seems like uh, one heck of a lady. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. Um, she's the troll slayer. You know, if you if you, uh, I think you, you mentioned that you uh, you you uh, know Arnold Schwarzenegger. When we were over at his house, I mentioned that I refer to my wife as a troll slayer. So he brought out his Conan the Barbarian sword. And he basically, you know, he showed her how to kind of wield it to trace the troll, uh, slays and trolls. So I, I read a good book uh, called Crisis of Conscience. Uh, and I had uh, I had the guy on the podcast uh, uh, last year. But um, do you know who Ernie Fitzgerald is? He was he was uh, a, a guy in the Pentagon who who was a whistleblower about waste inside the Pentagon in the 80s and uh, the 70s and 80s. But um, he, he was he was asked in one of his uh after this testimony that cost him a promotion, uh, stuff you're all familiar with. Um, and, he, and they said, you know, so why did, why did you do this? Um, and he said, uh, or they asked his wife too, and she said, I told him that I really didn't think I could live with a man I didn't respect. And if he went out there and lied, I'd have no respect for him. And uh, it struck me that your wife was probably a bit of a backbone for you in all of this, uh, in moments that you might have doubted yourself or wondered if it was all worth it. I think that's true. Um, ultimately, I knew my wife, um, you know, my my dad, my twin brother. I, I knew they all had my back. Um, I would say at times, um, you know, without parsing who who said what, there was you know discussion about like, you know, more moderated um, approaches to to do to to kind of testimony, you know, 
doing what, frankly, what would have made the, our, the army and the department of defense more comfortable, which is yes, no answers and kind of lies of omission and stuff like that. That's what have pro- pro- would have made my senior military kind of uh, leadership, uh, you know, more comfortable and would have in their mind kept me apolitical, strangely yeah. enough. Uh, and I, you know, ultimately I, I, you know, determined I was going to take my own counsel on this. I'd have to live with my own, uh, actions. You know, I, I allude to the fact that I would have to kind of, t- uh, look my daughter in the eye and justify my actions, uh, when, when she gets older and I did what I thought was right. But let me ask you about that because I think that's something that holds people back. So obviously, uh, for instance, uh, the 300 Spartans, they go to fight at Thermopylae. Um, A lot of people don't know they were chosen precisely because they all had children, right? Mm. Um, Each one was the father of at least one living son. The idea being they wouldn't let their children down by being cowards in battle. But you could also see the same argument that that's who you wouldn't pick because they would want to get home to their children, right? So that I think a lot of people, you know, they, they go like, I know what the right thing is. I know what a courageous person should do in this situation, but they go, it's not fair to my spouse, to my kids, to the collateral damage of this decision. And they, so they're not saying, well, they're, they're, they're saying like, I would do it if it was just up to me, but I don't want to do it because I'm, I'm too selfless, right? Or something. We talk ourselves out of it for what feels like a good reason, but where does that leave us? Uh, so, so walk me through how you think about collateral damage to a decision. Yeah, the Carol Leonig's book, uh, um, uh, I Alone, what, what is it? No, what is it? No, sorry. I should know this uh, title. Let's see. Uh, uh, I Can Fix It. Yeah, sorry. I Alone Can Fix It. Yeah, I, I Alone Can Fix It. We're, I just clicked off of something here. Um, but, you know, that's exactly it. You know, that these that there's a, <clears throat> there's a um, psychology around folks that think that they're the guardrails or that they need to maintain position in order to kind of avert even a bigger catastrophe. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's probably more, you know, ego and hubris than, than is appropriately justified, especially in the military hierarchy where we habitually train, you know, war, uh, fallout drills. You know, if, if the, the commander goes down, the XO steps up and stuff like that. And there's always somebody as competent or, or we failed in our mission to, to step up and do the same thing. So I think um, it's, I, I think that's just the rationalization mechanism to allow people to, to, you know, allow people to not, not follow through and do the right thing in the right way uh, rather than really substantive. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, you didn't, uh, you didn't have to walk through like, Hey, this is the right thing to do, but now I can't afford to send my daughter to college, right? Like, did you have to think about how the consequences of your stand uh, are? All, the, the burden of that is also borne by people that you love. I, I did, um, and I think for uh, you know maybe for even too long, I thought that my my career, military career was uh, was going to be able to continue. But I also wasn't what I when I realized it wasn't and it was in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, people were looking to for security. I didn't stick around for the purposes of just collecting a paycheck, uh, you know, and, and hope that I was going to get pr- promoted. I had uh, the confidence that I was 
going to land on my feet. And part of that is the product of, you know, my, my family history that I talk about in the book, you know, the fact that my family, uh, my father kind of restarted his life on multiple occasions, most recently at the age of 47, coming to the United States and hauling furniture, passing a civil service exam, becoming an engineer. I think that's, I, I, you know, that's another thing about self-deterrence. Um, you know, there's all these things, what I just, what I, I guess I describe as all of the tools I assembled in my life up until that point came into play. You know, this idea of self, and that's the way, the way the book is written. It's a series of lessons that came together for me to manage the affair. It's starting over, keep starting over. It's, you know, don't self-deter. It's trust your equipment. You know, the fact that you, you, you have, you've accumulated all your tools. Um, it's, it's everything coming together in that right moment. Um, no, I, I think your father's story is fascinating, uh, and it's it's so strange where we've gotten as a society that we've like to me one of the ultimate acts of moral courage is is to immigrate. Like we, we you know yeah. they're not sending their best people. Immigrants are the best people. They're the people who had the courage to start over to 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 face danger and risk to 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 provide a better life. One of the one of the people I've been reading about for the book is is Frank Serpico, the, the whistleblower in the NYPD. When you read about his mother's journey to America, she gives birth on the boat uh, across the Atlantic, uh, lands at a charity hospital. She loses the baby. The people who are supposed to meet her don't show up. And she she basically makes do as like a nanny for this family for like two years before her husband comes, not speaking a word of English. I then try to think about what what would give someone the courage to challenge the entirety of the NYPD. It's the example of his yep. mother. Sure. And was yeah, that for you with I your father? That's right. I think that's that's right. I think <clears throat> I think <clears throat> there were some very foundational lessons I learned from my father. First, he's he's a tough guy. Uh, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, suffered uh, and, uh, you know, had more kind of um, challenging experiences than I did uh, through World War II, through losing his own father uh, uh, who died in combat, uh, through having to start work hard and start over uh, and stealing some values, foundational values about kind of being truthful. Um, I learned a lot, a lot of stuff from my father. Another Serpico thing I thought you, you might have some thoughts on. He talks about how publicly he was persona non grata, but privately, all sorts of people were like, especially in the department, were like, great job. We support you. We're not corrupt either. Thank you for doing this. And he would always say to them, well, why aren't you standing with me publicly? And they and they their, the reply was inevitably. And what be an outcast like you? Um, yeah. And I, I've got to imagine that you heard many messages of private support from people who you could have very much needed uh, in your corner that weren't there. What is that phenomenon? So that's that's very interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading this book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would say that um, I received a uh, a great deal of support from peers, colonels, and below. But I heard absolutely crickets from senior leader, leaders mm. uh, up the chain, even folks that I had been close to, <clears throat> you know, uh, there was one individual I referenced in the book that was kind of managing me to kind of make sure <clears throat> I didn't go off the reservation or something like that. But that's really about it. Um, and then, you no. Know, 
the, the voices that would have been that would have indicated that I was still in good standing never kind of chimed in, frankly. And um, it's a little bit different than um, than I guess uh, in Serpico standards or, or a Serpico scenario where he actually had folks kind of coming out and, and telling him and he could challenge him on that. I I, I don't know if I even Interesting. had quite that kind of uh, uh, level of support. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoic, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been, right? Right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply because i think part, part of it at that le- uh, at the at the general officer level they're kind of bureaucratic polit- politicians and they saw risk uh, potentially in, in you know offering that kind of support isn't isn't that a big part of it why you know we go like why isn't the president or the ceo or the senator why aren't they more outspoken about this taking this risk it seems to me that so much of that is because to get where they got they had to be really good at not stepping in it along the way. So I think about that uh, that uh, Ad- Admiral Captain, I'm forgetting, the, the guy who's in charge of the Theodore Roosevelt during the pandemic. Um, the, yeah, the, 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 the COVID outbreak on his ship, like if he had not said anything, he'd still be in the Navy and probably have been promoted. So there's, yes. so, so, and, and what's almost more impressive about what he did is you don't get in charge of a battleship if you're the guy who's always spouting off, never yeah. thinking of political consideration. So it's a balance, right? When you're political and when you go to the mattresses on something, that, that's I think that's a difficult balance for people. That's that is uh very, very astute. I would say that uh one of the issues that we're ha- we we have with the officer corps officer corps right now is that they they're competent officers, but they never risk too much. You know, th- that would really truly kind of like and you could see it play out in like 
combat. They've never really truly risked too much that would have potentially upended their career. Uh, and they've never really misstepped. So in, in uh, 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 it's kind of damning to say they're kind of, they're better than mediocre, but they're not the best. Yes. Because the people that have, that have maybe risked more, may have even made some mistakes, uh, were cast aside. And uh, the, the, the force breeds these types of officers. And you saw, you see it come to bear in my situation. You see it come to bear in, in Captain Crozier's, uh, Crozier's situation. You see it come to bear, frankly, in the consequences in Afghanistan, uh, where, you know, people weren't entirely, were not forthright in providing uh, the best military advice to uh, the, the political leadership, um, failed to really accomplish the mission, but uh, cast their, their service in a way that allowed them to continue to advance. Yeah. Do you know what the Peter principle is? I'm, I'm sorry, you broke up. Oh, sorry. Do you know, like, uh, it's to me, that's an illustration of the Peter principle. Okay. Do you know what that is? Uh, remind me. The, the Peter principle is that you get promoted to your level of incompetence because yeah, then okay. you stop getting promoted. But yeah. the, the problem is the people who are hyper-competent usually end up leaving or going on to do other things. And your your ranks, whether it's at a company or the military or politics, get filled with the people who are at their just level where they can't get any better or handle anything more difficult than what's on their plate. I think Sun Tzu would have, would have would, uh, there's a, a, a highly appropriate Sun Tzu quote here to, to what we experienced in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, strategy without tactics is a, a slow road to victory. Tactics without strategy is a sure road to defeat. And I mean, basically that's what we had. We, we, we really didn't have a particularly effective strategy that was being run by the senior leadership. And I, I think that, you know, kind of plays, plays out in the, in the bureaucracy at large. And then you might argue the moral courage is nobody is speaking about that and escalating it up to, to a place where someone could do something about it. I think that's, that's right. Uh, that the, what may have been demanded at some point in the past is, uh, you know, an officer corps that was willing to sacrifice their career. I mean, their political appointees at the three and four star level and sacrifice their career based on their conviction. Like I had a conviction about what I thought was, was right. And I stayed with it, but they had a conviction that they kind of sacrificed that, you know, maybe the theater wasn't going the right way, but additional resources were required. And they sacrificed their conviction for, for uh, careerism. So what is it where, like, I can almost understand, like, let's say I, I'm listening to the call uh, or, or whatever, and I can, I can maybe understand not doing something about it. People, people try to go, it's not my problem. It's not my fault. People don't, they don't have the courage to, to be in the hot seat that you step in. What's always fascinating to me in these situations is the people who then decide to attack the person who was in the in the in the hot seat. I, I think Biden's comments on some of the governors here in like where I live, where it's like, look, if you don't want to fight the, the pandemic, fine, but at least get out of the way. Right. And so yeah. when I watch the test, when I watch your testimony, what I'm struck by is the person who decided to walk to wake up that day and be like, I'm going to try to fuck with this guy who is doing the right thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's, that's, that's really, I mean, that, that is, uh, in, in certain cases, uh, uh, they're partisan, uh, <clears throat> partisan actors that know where their bread is buttered and basically know what they need to deliver in order to keep, their, you know, keep themselves in favor. Uh, so I think that accounts for a large 
swath of these folks. But, uh, you know, I also didn't really deliberate um, you know, about who was going to report what. It was squarely on my, in my portfolio. I was the responsible officer. I was the, you know, uh, I had co- co- uh, requested, coordinated, staffed, and did, uh, done everything for that portfolio. So I really didn't pay that much mind. I mean, I looked up to see if anybody else took note, but I wasn't going to wait for somebody else to kind of re- report it or build a, a consensus. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> even when Fiona P- uh, Hill was in position two weeks before, <clears throat> I refer to this meeting on Janu- uh, July 10th, where uh, Gordon Sondland you know, first proposes the quid pro quo, saying that you know this, the instructions. Uh, you know, he did this based on a conversation with Mick Mulvaney, right? I I didn't wait for Fiona to report it. As soon as I told Donald Sondland, uh, not Donald Gordon Sondland, no, I wasn't going to do it. This is kind of you know this is inappropriate. I went and reported it. Uh, it turns out that that was exactly what Ambassador Bolton and Fiona Hill wanted to, wanted uh, to have happen. But you know, uh, I knew what my responsibilities were, and I was going. I think at some point, you know, especially. At 20 years, you know what the right thing is to do is. You, you don't need somebody to tell you what the right thing is. You, you should just do it. That struck me as a, a flashback to your experience in Iraq where you said you come under fire, there's the IED. You just felt a sense of calm in that moment. And you kind of, as gruesome and violent and bad as it was, you knew what you needed to do. It, it struck me as it, when this call happened, you knew what you needed to do. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting how like somebody could dissect, you know, the, the, the book and, and see, you know, what lessons kind of the the way I constructed it really, but what lessons, uh, how those lessons kind of played in to the various decisions I made, uh, you know, in in those fateful months in 2019. Yeah. It's uh, Mark Surrealist has another good line. It says just that you do the right thing. The rest doesn't matter. Uh, he says, tired or well-rested, despised or honored, uh, warm or cold, uh, just that you do the right thing. And, and uh, do you think if you had known the consequences, it might have, I don't want to say changed your mind, but was part of it that you, you didn't think about what might happen? Do you know what I mean? Like, you, obviously, you knew he might be impeached because yeah. you said that. But did you think about, hey... I'm going to lose my job. My brother's going to lose his job at the White House. I'm going to be a, uh, you know, widely hated by this group of people. I'm going to have to find a new uh, line of work. If you had thought about all of that, would it have caused you to lose heart, do you think? Or it would have affected your calculation? No. <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of facetious, but uh, I'll tell you, uh, there are certain things that I, I you know, you could imagine all the conversations that were going on behind the scenes. My attorneys telling me, "Look, just you know, offer minimal kind of uh, if you want you want a military career, kind of like give your your uh, give the kind of most don't offer too much." My my dad also, uh, you know, telling me that I need to come to an accommodation w- with the pre- with the president, understand counseling me that you know you don't go up against power without consequence. So, I, I mean, it's not like I was blind to the events. Uh, I was hopeful, certainly, about the fact that, you know, the military would add in, uh, act in accordance with values. Uh, but I also wasn't going to be deterred based on kind of some self-serving calculations. The, the hardest thing of all of, all of these things, looking back and, and thinking about, um, you know, my behavior is I, I puzzled over what I would have done if the president was successful in his enterprise. 
which he in certain ways was very close to to getting his investigation. You know, it's not it's not really widely known, but a couple of days before well the 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 House committees launched their investigation into the hold on security assistance on September 11th. I think only a couple of days after that uh, Zelensky was scheduled to to make to have a press conference with CNN to report the investigation. And it's because things unfolded the way they did, the, the president was unsuccessful in his enterprise. And I asked, you know, I kind of asked myself, what would I have done if using the proper channels wasn't effective? If if making the reports, uh, if all this stuff, you know, if the president could continue to obstruct uh, lawful aid to uh, uh, directed by Congress. And I I based on my my follow through, I guess, in, in testimony, I have a. Um, belief that I would do the right thing, but it's one of those kind of unknowns because it didn't unfold that way. Yeah, like when I think about moments in my own life where I took risks, like when I dropped out of college and I think other things where I saw things or I was a part of things and I maybe should have spoken up or should have spoken up earlier, my regrets, both when I was successful and when I fell short, was that I didn't have more confidence in myself, right? And I think what, what I saw as the theme in your decisions is you, you believed not just that right matters, but you believed that you would be okay, whatever happened, right? You sort of, I'm going to do the right thing, come what may. And I think that when a lot of people are afraid, they don't want to speak up, they go like, uh, well, I don't want to lose my job. What, what's interesting is, and I wonder what they could accomplish if they sat down and thought, you'll just get another fucking job, right? Like you're not going to end up, you almost certainly will not end up under a bridge somewhere. Right. Uh, right. You know, and, and so it seems like your confidence was a really integral part of you being able to get through this. I, I think I think that's right. And I think that, again, that's a reflection of my my, you know, family's experience starting over. Uh, I had all the things that my dad didn't necessarily have. I had a advanced degrees. I had a you know a decades long military career. I had a network of friends and supporters. Um, you know, that I could fall back on, even if I had to start over. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I had, had that confidence. Yeah. And, and probably seeing your dad survive on so much less made you aware that you did have an, um, you did have quite a bit of privileges and advantages that you could fall back on here that, that even if you didn't have, you would be fine. Yep, I think that's right. I think it, it, there's some perspective uh, that you know you could you could just look at the worst case scenario. Uh, you could look at kind of the the costs, um, and that might deter action. Uh, but I, I guess I uh, always try to uh, take a step back and look and have some perspective on on things, um, and that helped. That that always kind of helps. You talk about Joshua Chamberlain at the end of the book. Um, and I, it's not that you're likening yourself to him, but it did strike me as you were making a statement that I think people are afraid to make or believe in, which is this idea of the great man of history theory, that like an individual can make a difference, right? That that feels like not cool and maybe a bit naive. And I, yeah. I wonder if people are, af they're afraid to do that. It's, it's, this is a critical point. I think sometimes we we are we're complacent because we either think things are going to work out or we're complacent because we think that we can't have an effect on 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 uh you know on events. 
and I frankly, this is something that I want Americans to know, is that they they actually have a voice and they could have an impact. Every person that chooses to, to want to have an impact can do that. And I, I just, you know, this is something that I, I believe in because you know, individuals that would otherwise be unremarkable have had kind of distinct impacts on history. Well, the converse of that is also true. If you don't believe that an individual can make a difference, it's true in your case. You will not be the individual that makes a difference. Very true. And I think we want to think about, and I think this is, it's like, if you don't do something, who are you seeding the fields to? There's a, there's a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Hillel, very prominent rabbi, and he has this, uh, there's a line, if, if not, if not you, then who, if not now, then when? Uh, and I remember, you know, my, my rabbi kind of mentioning it to me and those, that thought, there were a couple of like mantras that were going around in my brain. It was that, it was do the right thing in the, the right way. Uh, you know, don't self-deter, don't be afraid to start over. These are the things that kind of like every now and then the army values, uh, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. These are the things that like, you know, I, I, I would kind of, I don't know if they were explicit in every case, but these were the thoughts that kind of would, would rattle around when I had to make, uh, make a weighty decision. Uh, and it didn't have to be something that kind of like I labored over uh, to, to, you know, ad, ad nauseum, but something that I could, you know, weigh pretty quickly through those filters and make a decision on. Yeah, Congressman John Lewis had that quote in his office as well. And you want to talk about an individual of moral courage who makes a difference. I mean, he was a kid and yeah. and he changed the course of American history by by stepping up and getting on a bus and being beaten. Yeah. Did you so, so you thought about like, if not me, then who? That's one thing I'm not totally clear on. So somebody else also reported the call, right? Well, so, you know, it's I, it's something that I I didn't, I made, I made the, you know, it, it's something that I thought of afterwards, um, after I talked to, about this to, with my uh, rabbi and he kind of offered some counsel to kind of like, you know, to, to, to provide some support uh, for me. But I, I mean, I made the point early on that I didn't really have to deliberate on the you know, on the first series of yeah. decisions at, at all. Where I just knew instinctively what to do. But afterwards, thinking about it, it made perfect sense. Uh, in terms of other people reporting it, well, so, so you know, it turns out that Tim Morrison also uh, um, reported it, but he couched it in a completely different way. He reported it because he was afraid there was going to be a leak. And he just wanted to alert the the uh, proper le uh, legal officials, which is, you know, frankly, a bunch of bullshit. Because so he uh, was just covering his ass, basically. He, he was an attorney, and he's good at covering his ass, and he, he covered his ass in this case. In addition to that, you know, what's what's funny is that actually before we even had this phone call, I was like, "Hey, Tim, why don't we bring the attorneys into this? This is this might be a lively call." Uh, you know, you, you're familiar with the background, this, this incident that occurred with Ambassador Bolton two weeks before, and he kind of gives me a quizzical look, like he's kind of an asshole, he gives me a quizzical look, Is like, why? And then he does this bullshit line on the back end to cover his ass saying he just reported it because he didn't want any, you know, leaks or something like that. It's, you know, it's kind of the way he is. So that was the other person who also reported, so you were the only one then? Uh, uh, 
Well, I guess I'm the only part. I'm aware of the fact that I reported. Uh, uh, Tim mentioned that he reported it in his testimony. I don't know who else reported it. Interesting. Yeah, it's just it's just funny how something could happen and multiple people see it, but everyone's sort of hoping it's the the inverse of Hillel's line. Uh, if somebody else does it, then I don't have to do it. Brian, I'm not sure what you're getting at. What are you What are you trying to say? No, no, I, I'm <laughs> saying <laughs> I'm saying in all situations, this is what we do. We hope. No, you not. think about uh, Kitty Genovese, right? No, you're, you're right. I'm joking. I'm joking about whether, like, you know, you're leading me down the road of like, are you so what? You're you're the you're their guy or something? No, no, I'm I'm just thinking about like I, I am fascinated with that Kitty Genovese uh, incident. Hundreds of people hear it, and everyone thinks. Well, I hope someone else will do it so I don't have to. Terrible. Yep. And and so, I mean, some people, if they're trying to impugn you, are, are trying to say, oh, it's ego. You know, it's it's yep. him wanting to. So is but is there ego in being like, I'm the I'm the individual to make a difference. I'm the one that needs to do it. Like, how does one balance between like, this is the right thing and I'm just making this about me? So there's there is there was probably some ego in you know my strong desire to want to serve on the NSC. It's a prestigious uh, uh, position. There is no ego in wanting to put yourself out in the middle of fire, you know, uh, ch- challenge the president of the United States, become a public figure. That's just not the world kind of that I come from. There's no real interest in there. But I guess you know I think your question is actually a little different. Um, is there a desire or an urgency to kind of say, you know, take it on my shoulders that if it wasn't for me, this would never have happened. I think that's a, if, if, if you were to make, if I were to make a statement like that, it's probably factual, frankly, based on what I know and what I learned, it's a factual statement, but saying it sounds egotistical. So right. that's just not something that like, you know, I guess I, I would uh, uh, naturally say um, it has come up as a kind of counterfactual before, as a matter of fact, I think Susan Page, when in her awesome interview, kind of raised it as a counterfactual, and it brings clarity to kind of, I guess, my 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 role. But uh, it's not the way kind of Byron York of whatever a knucklehead paper he writes for, uh, you know, far right pa- paper, uh, saying that I was a driving force. I just did what I thought was right. Well, I was just thinking we we for instance we'll do this like with whistleblowers. We often do it with like victims of sexual assault. We go like, oh, this person's just after attention, or this person wants to be famous, and yeah. it's so preposterous because it's like nobody wants to be famous for this. No, <laughs> no. I mean, it's it's funny that like you know I've, I've I do feel a great deal of support for America, but I also am reviled by other segments of America. Who wants to put, I mean, it's better to be like in your own little neighborhood. You've got your close uh, circle of friends or something like that. Uh, people that you, you know, and nobody else knows you. At least that's in my, in my world. I mean, I guess we live in a world now where like, you know, uh, people want that kind of attention, but that doesn't resonate with me. It's, uh, I'd rather not be reviled by like millions of people that have been, uh, that, that have been lied to and convinced that, uh, uh, Elections are stolen and, the, you know, the president is, is a hero that when that last president was about as harmful a figure is in U.S. history as as we've probably ever had, frankly. And I'm not saying that like kind of whimsically, you know, that we were able to, uh, um, you know, even B- Buchanan, who kind of uh, led us down uh, towards civil war 
uh, was an enormous tragedy. You know, he's responsible for some 600,000 deaths in part because there are a whole other se- sequence of events. But this president is equally culpable in mismanaging a, cri- a pandemic that magnified many times the amount of dead we have. And how is he walk? I don't I just don't understand how he could walk away from that. It's his mismanagement that resulted in six in what could have been tens of thousands of dead to six hundred thousand dead. Well, I was going to ask you about that with your study of the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, your experiences with uh, Trump and Giuliani. What what happens to a person's soul and their personality that that takes them down that road? Is it is it that power corrupts? Is it were they always like that? How is it evil? Like how how do you end up where these people have ended up? So I think Giuliani and, and uh, Trump are two different figures. I think um, Giuliani no- notoriously had a, lar- a huge ego, even when he was a even when he was a, a you know uh, an honorable uh, public servant. Uh, he uh, was justifiably kind of uh, lauded and elevated for his service to as a, the mayor of New York uh, during difficult times. He really kind of uh, undertook some serious reforms. And then he was corrupted by, by power and, you know, desire for wealth. And who knows what else uh, is, you know, he might be suffering from. I don't think Trump at any point was like that. He, he didn't, doesn't even understand the concept of public servants. He thinks public servants and um, you know military uh, service members are suckers and losers. He does not understand the concept of serving anything but himself. So those are two different kind of figure, figures. One's corrupted, and the other one uh, may have been rotten from the very beginning. Yeah, it's uh, and and I think this goes to to the point we were talking about earlier of why you have to be strategic and why you have to be. Uh, intelligent when you decide to to step forward about something because you're not playing against people who are playing by the rules. Absolutely. Um, I think there's, I've got a, uh, I've got a, a world press um, uh, panel discussion in a couple of weeks and we kind of, uh, I'm, t- I'm going to talk to a reporter that basically has covered whistleblowers uh, for a swath of, of, of his career and it's interesting, you know, he asked me if I thought I was a whistleblower and uh, we kind of ruminated on this idea. And he said, you know, traditionally whistleblowers feel like they have no other recourse but to go leak, go go to the press because sure. they can't figure out a way to kind of navigate the system. In a lot of ways, I navigated, you know, entirely from within the system uh, um, to effect. I mean, I wasn't the sole actor. We also had a, a intelligence community whistleblower that you know, recognized the, the, the perils to this country and, and, and spoke up. But uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't you know, leak to anybody. I didn't do anything that was kind of outside of uh, pr- proper procedures at, at fr- frankly, any point, which is, I think is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. Uh, to me, that's a testament that you, to, to what you did. It's not just that it was right. But, you know, you talk about execution. It's also how you execute on uh, the mission that you're embarking on. I was very lucky. I'll take I'll go, go ahead and luck, uh, hang it on luck. All right. All right. That, that's that's the non-egotistical way to look at it. But, yeah. but is it is it strange to go uh, like 
you know, you, you talk, clearly you have a sort of a, reven, a, a reverence for America. It means something to you. What does it feel like to be inside the core of, you know, American government and come to the conclusion that you came to, that the president may be rotten to the core or that, that, that this is a corruption of those fundamental values? It was not easy. And I think, you know, there might may have uh, that this may have been kind of like a uh, um, a misstep of sorts. As I watched this, this uh, these events unfold over the preceding months before the phone call. And uh, certainly, you know, uh, it was clear that uh, Giuliani was involved. I learned that it was um, Gordon Sondland, Mick Mulvaney, all sorts of other folks that, you know, initially it looked like it, you could say this was completely outside of government. Then it obviously came back uh, to government actors being involved. But my reverence for the office of the president in, a, in certain ways didn't allow me to kind of like hang this on the, the office until that phone call. Huh. Uh, because I, 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 in a way, I rationalized that these might be people that are, you know, traditional kind of toady figures that look to elevate themselves and gratiate themselves. But there was no way that the president would be behind something like this. Or at least, even if I suspected it, I wasn't, it's, it's not something that I was going to kind of like, you know, uh, land on firmly without something more concrete. I remember when I brought this, the hold on security assistance out of the shadows, when it was initially, it was a hold by, uh, by uh, Mick Mulvaney using his kind of levers over uh, management and budget. And it was extra procedural. And I brought it into the national security process. I, I ran it through kind of what we do, uh, these policy coordinating committees and, and all these things and ran it all the way through the de cap, uh, deputy um, deputies, which is, um, you know, cabinet level officials, their deputies, number two guys in all the departments and agencies. Uh, and, you know, people are telling me that it, it's coming from the office of the president. I never, you know, I actually didn't put that in a report because I'm not going to put down the president was responsible for the hold on the security assistance. I know that, you know, it came from Mick Mulvaney, but I'm not going to attribute it to the president. Sure. When the president's hand became clear in that call when he was the one that said, I need you to do us a favor, though, and proceeded to lay out, you know, this investigation. And that was uh, my my uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, that that kind of shattered, uh, penetrated my uh, reverence for the office of the president. Um, I still hold an office in high regard. I just don't I, I hate the idea of calling Trump, you know, President Trump. Uh, he didn't deserve, doesn't deserve that honorific. Well, that that's something I'm struggling with, and I, I, you've probably thought about it. What what does it say about America? Not just that it could happen, uh, not just that a lot of people were involved in it happening, and not just that only you know the the vote to do something about it happened on very clear uh, partisan lines, with one exception of Mitt Romney. Uh, I think a bit of an act of courage. But what does it say that? A huge percentage of the American people, when when asked about it, also decided that it didn't bother them. What do we do? How do we come back from that? What do we do that we've lost our ability to be outraged about these things? Well, I think with each uh, transgression, especially under the previous administration, the bar uh, was, was set lower for government, uh, government, and we stopped kind of being shocked by, by, you know, presidential abuse. You think the president, you know, uh, talking about groping women, uh, uh, would, would have affected his ability to get elected should be immediately uh, disqualified. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think there's a there's actually a firm. This should be in 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 law. If you can't get a, a, a if you can't get a majority of the votes in your own constituency, like a New Yorker, then you should be excluded. Yes, they, those people, people probably, who know you, the people who know you, then you should be excluded. I think that should be a kind of like you know, you you get the majority, you get the electoral college, but also you have to earn uh, uh, the majority in your own constituents. So. Um, You know, that's absolutely true uh, that the, uh, the, you know, the president won 74 million uh, plus votes, but he also lost by 7 million votes. Uh, And uh, that's telling that margin is unprecedented. Um, He lost bigly in in the electoral college. Uh, And um, I think right now there's a bit of a struggle over not the tyranny of the majority, which is our which which is what our constitution was designed to protect, but the tyranny of the minority that has kind of been you know uh, uh, led down the primrose path and um, has kind of lost their way, um, and are holding this country hostage. And I think you know this these are, these are the arguments about filibuster whether whether it makes sense in this in this current context whether you know uh, we've caught, crossed some sort of threshold where um, the majority needs to assert its rights to pr- uh, properly govern I think you know frankly we might be there especially if uh, voting rights are in jeopardy uh, and you know the minor- the attorney of the minority is trying to hang on by uh, you know disenfranchising people but I think there's a bigger issue in, in play, that has both an external and an internal component. External, our adversaries are always looking for seams, are lo- always looking for uh, avenues to kind of uh, sow um, disinformation and magnify it. Um, you know, that, that's a consistent pattern. But there are internal actors, political actors, that see it in their interest to also not advocate for, you know, for many, uh, uh, one, not for for unity, but for division and maintain power through division. And I think, you know, accountability, unfortunately, is going to have to come at the hands of the electorate that just cannot forget about these transgressions. Uh, And that's a starting point. I think there's also, not to belabor this point, there's also an obligation for this very, very busy administration that's focused on, you know, an enormous amount of challenges uh, uh, domestically and overseas moving forward to address challenges from the previous administration, accountability, because there's a lot to be learned about the weaknesses um, that, you know, the, the president uh, exploited. It was a stress harden. test. It was a stress test. And if we don't do something, you know, if we don't ca- take the proper step, uh, steps, uh, uh, you know, we, if we don't build uh, build in kind of a solvency, uh, we're, we're going to be, or next time we face a challenge, from a much more competent actor, the president wasn't a competent actor, we, we really could be in danger. No, I think that's right. And I, I think your, your point about laying it at the feet of the voters is right. It's going to require some ordinary acts of courage from voters to put aside the issues that you care the most about to deal with this unpleasant situation and face some truths about your own party. I'm speak, I'm thinking of my own father and, and people I'm close with. It's like, look, I get you care about all these things, but and I get that you have very strong partisan affiliation uh, against this or for this. And it's going to require you facing some of that 
to come together and deal with what is, I think, the sort of the governing crisis of our time. Absolutely. Sir, thank you so much. This is a complete honor. I loved the book. Uh, and uh, I thank you for your service, not your military service, of course, thank you for that. But the service that you did, uh, at, that you detail in this book, uh, as you said, it was a, a narrow run thing. It could have gone in another direction if, if you hadn't stood up and done what you did. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to your book. Uh, I, I loved you calling out. I, I, I'm going to have to start listening to this one. I, I love you calling out quotes and stuff like that. Uh, so that's uh, it's good stuff. My newest book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave, is now available for pre-order. We've got a bunch of amazing bonuses. You can get signed copies, of course. Uh, I'm so proud of this book. General Jim Mattis has called it a superb handbook for crafting a purposeful life. Matthew McConaughey, also a father, called it an urgent call to arms to each and all of us. I do hope you check it out. It's my first in the Four Virtues series, Courage, Temperance, Justice, Wisdom. Courage is calling, fortune favors the brave. If you want to pre-order it, I'd really appreciate your support. Go to dailystoic.com slash pre-order. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less. In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black